Volume Three, Chapter Eleven of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Three, Chapter Eleven, Elsie Melville's Letter. Francis Hogarth had devoted himself to public life even more assiduously after the departure of Jane than before and had made himself more prominent in Parliament as practice strengthened his powers of debate and study, increased his stock of information. He was invaluable on a committee to those who really wanted to elicit the truth, while those who had anything to conceal dreaded his searching questions and careful weighing of conflicting testimony. His own peculiar crotchet, the reconstruction of electoral districts so as to secure the rights of minorities, to increase the purity and diminish the expense and the bitterness of elections in the meantime, and to pave the way for the elevation of the masses by the gradual extension of the suffrage, by securing that the new voters should not have all political power in their hands, was one that, of course, found little sympathy within the walls of Parliament. There never has yet been, says Mr. J. S. Mill, among political men in England, any real serious attempt to prevent bribery, because there has been no real desire that elections should not be costly. Their costliness is an advantage to those who can afford the expense by excluding a multitude of competitors, and anything, however noxious, is cherished as having a conservative tendency if it limits the access to Parliament to rich men. This is a rooted feeling among our legislators of both parties, and is about the only point on which I believe them to be really ill-intentioned. They care comparatively little who votes, as long as they feel assured that none but persons of their own class can be voted for. They know that they can rely on the fellow-feeling of one of their own class with another, while the subservience of nouveau-riches, who knocking at the door of the class, is a still surer reliance, and that nothing very democratic need be apprehended under the most democratic suffrage, as long as democratic persons can be prevented from being elected to Parliament." But outside of the walls of the House of Commons, Francis had found many who agreed with him as to the necessity for some great change. All accounts from America, and even those from Australia, proved that the wide extension of the suffrage without some precaution to secure the minorities from extinction tended to political degeneration, even in counties where there was great material prosperity, abundance of land, considerable advantages of education, and greater equality of condition than Britain. The march of affairs was all steadily towards more democratic institutions, and Francis was not deceived by temporary and partial reactions. The extension of the suffrage must come, and England ought to be prepared to meet it. He was willing to take advantage of every suggestion and every discovery that might be made, and when a scheme more comprehensive than that of Sir Rowland Hill, for our first Adelaide Corporation, and incomparably better than Lord John Russell's, was first launched into the world, amid many sneers that it was utopian, crotchety, and un-English, he adopted it with an enthusiasm which he knew Jane Melville would approve of. The criticism and the ridicule only strengthened his conviction of the feasibility of the scheme, and his hopes of its success. Jane was sure to be proud, if he could be the means of bringing about so great a reform. They had often talked on the subject, but had never been able to devise anything comparable to this. Mr. Sinclair, with whom the matter had been gone over most carefully, was quite as enthusiastic about it as the discoverer himself, and Francis wished more than ever that the entrance to Parliament was less expensive and less difficult, 
so that he might have so good a coadjutor. Old Thomas Lowry was dead, and Peggy and her young folks were all full of preparation for the outward voyage to Australia. Tom hoped to serve out his time to as great advantage in Melbourne as in Edinburgh, and he really was as clever and as skilful as if he had been seven, instead of less than two years at the engineering. Francis had visited much at Miss Thompson's, and had seen a great deal of Mary Forrester, but not with the result that Jane had anticipated, and now, before she had made any impression on him beyond the conviction that she was an exceedingly amiable girl, the plans of the whole family were changed, and they too were going to Australia. As Mary had said, they had cost Aunt Margaret a great deal of money, first and last. Mr. Forster had been indolent, and perhaps unlucky. Mrs. Forster had been occupied with the cares of a very large family, and had not the force of character of her single sister. Her eldest son had gone to Australia some time before, and though he had not made a fortune, he had done pretty well, and he was perhaps ashamed that so much had been done for his family by his aunt, and so little by himself. So he wrote, advising them to come out to Melbourne, at least all but John, who was now of service to Miss Thompson, and James, if he thought his business worth staying for. If Margaret and Mary were inclined to take situations as governesses, he had no doubt they could obtain them. Robert and Henry could work for themselves, and with his help could assist their parents to better advantage than in Scotland. The family council met on this proposal, and it was ultimately acceded to, and the family were busy with their preparations to go in the same ship as Peggy and the Lowrys. It seemed to Francis as if everybody was going to Australia. He had dined out one day, and had brushed against some of the greatest men of the age, and felt himself brightened by the collision. He sat beside the most benevolent, the most enlightened, and the most sober-minded of political economists, on the one hand, on the other by the most brilliant of French conversationalists. He, Francis Hogarth, the obscure bank clerk, who had had no name, no position, and, he used to think, no ability, was admitted on equal footing with such men as these. He had not felt so much on the occasion of his dining with the Earl, and meeting with people there of title and political influence. After an evening passed in conversation on the subjects which especially interested him, Francis returned to his club. He sat down before going to bed with a cigar, and took up his letters. An Australian mail was in, and a letter from Jane and from Elsie. Jane's was first taken up and read. It described her life at Wiriwilta, the house and the scenery, so far as she could do it justice, Miss Phillips's relations with Dr. Grant, and Jane's hopes that Brandon and Elsie would come to an understanding, for his manner had been very much like that of a man in love. How cautious, how affectionate were her expressions to himself! How she seemed to live in others, and to care for the happiness of every one in the world, while regardless of her own and of his! "'Ah, Jane,' he said, half aloud, "'how different it would be to come home, after such an evening as this, to you, and see your dear eyes brighten at the recital of all I have seen and all I have heard, to hear your beloved voice inspiring me to more exertion and more patience, after sitting through so many party debates, so much transparent self-seeking, and so much ungenerous opposition, as I cannot help seeing in Parliament, how refreshing to see, among such men as I have met to-day, the pure, genuine public spirit which Jane first showed me the example of in the midst of her hardest trials. This reform does not bring personal advantage to one of these people, and yet they are as enthusiastic about it as if their lives depended on it. It may bring fame, but as Mr. says, the laurels will be late, and we will have lost the care for them by the time they fall on our heads. 
The pleasure is in the work, the disinterested work itself, as Jane used to say. There is one half the globe between us. I cannot fancy that she is sitting over the fire thinking of me at this moment. It is morning with her, and she is up and busy. But in my business and in my pleasure, or my trouble, she is always in the background, if not in the foreground, of my thoughts. But then she does not love me as I love her. And a long fit of silent musing, with the letter in his hand, followed these half-spoken regrets. But I must read Elsie's letter, too. It appears to be long, and the first she has written me, later in date than Jane's, which is posted in the country, and, I suppose, asking for congratulations. Well, she shall have them. As he opened the envelope, he saw the curious legal-looking document enclosed, containing the certified copy of Mrs. Peck's confession. His curiosity was strongly aroused. He read it through first with surprise and agitation. Elsie's own letter was not long. It ran as follows. My dear Francis, I enclose you this, because I think you ought to know that Mrs. Peck is not your mother. I think you must have had good parents, though you may never be able to find them out. You are still as much entitled to Cross Hall, and all that my uncle left you, for you know it was given to you because you deserved it, and I am sure he could have found no worthier heir. I had hoped very much that the evidence would have been sufficient to prove that you are not Jane's cousin, because you might then have done as you pleased without losing the property, and the position and the opportunities you make such good use of, but I fear, and Mr. Brandon fears, that it cannot be conclusively proved. We have sent you all the information we can get from Mrs. Peck. You will observe a few additional memoranda at the end of the confession. I am quite convinced that what she says is true, for I have often remarked that you were not at all like my uncle or any of his family, and you are still more unlike Mrs. Peck. Consult your own judgment about making inquiries. I know that you will do rightly and well. You will be very glad to hear that I am engaged to Mr. Brandon, who has taken all the trouble about this affair, and I think elicited all that Mrs. Peck knows. It is most unfortunate that she is so little to be believed, and that she wanted to get money for her information, as well as revenge on you for not answering her letter or letters. I believe I am going to be very happy, and I only wish I could make everybody as happy as myself. Give my love to Peggy when you see her, and say that I should have liked to have been married from her house rather than from any other, but I do not think Mr. Brandon will let me wait so long. Jane will be writing to you all the weary Wilton news, and about Miss Phillips and Dr. Grant. Mrs. Phillips has been very kind to me, kinder than ever she was before, and as for Mr. Phillips, you know how good he has always been to both Jane and myself. We both like Australia, even more than we expected, and I am going to try to make a good bushwife to one who loves me very much. He desires me to send his kindest regards to you, and believe me, always, your very affectionate friend, Elsie Melville. "'Well,' said Francis, "'here is one person who cares about my happiness. If I cannot prove that Jane is not my cousin, I can at least give up the property, which never would have been left to me unless Henry Hogarth had believed me to be his son.' Jane must love me, her sister must know it, or she would never have written to me thus. I will have her after a time. If I can combine the public duty and the career I have entered on with happiness, so much the better. If not, farewell ambition. She cannot blame me for such a course. Henry Hogarth wronged his nieces to enrich me, supposing me to be his son. He must have supposed it, or he would not have forbidden our marriage on account of the cousinship." If I can restore it to Jane by marriage, well and good, but otherwise I cannot keep it. Tomorrow for inquiries. First, a file of the Times for eighteen, the police reports, the coroner's inquests, 
the passenger list of the Sydney ship and of the American ship, inquiries at the lodging-house near the wharf, then to Edinburgh to inquire at the house in New Street, and to consult with Macfarlane and Sinclair. I surely can work through it. At least I will try. End of Volume 3, Chapter 11